Welcome back to Queen's of the Tech Age. I am your host, Kat Baker. Uh, as ever, joining me is our founder, Amara Ahmed. How's it going? I am great, thank you, Kat. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. It's been an interesting couple of weeks since we last recorded. Obviously, the world's opened up a little bit. I've been to the theatre, I've seen friends. <gasps> what did you watch at the theatre? Um, I, I saw Operation Mincemeat at the Southwark Playhouse. Um, which I would say, everyone, go and see, it's amazing. A, it is amazing, but unfortunately this run is sold out. So look out for it coming somewhere in London uh, soon, because it is a fantastic play. Okay, caveats, you have to like musicals. So I love musicals, but I've not heard of this play, so if you'd give me like a 30-second summary, sell it to me, Kat. Well, it's about the World War II Operation Mincemeat, i.e. the plan to make Hitler think we were invading... Sardinia instead of Sicily. So, uh, and it's, it's based, the musical is about these sort of people working at MI5 who come up with the plan of Operation Mincemeat, which is to find a dead body, dress it up like an airman, airman create a, a backstory for them, attach a briefcase with fake plans, and drop them off the coast to Spain. Um, and then hilarity ensues. Obviously, historically, we all know it worked out really well. <laughs> from a certain like, point of view <laughs> I was going to say um, wow that sounds really interesting you're the second person who's um, recommended musicals to me recently which have been based on real life um, sort of events I guess is the best way to sum them both up they're two very different events um, yeah the second... go ahead what, what's the I can't remember the name but apparently it's about um, sort of like the chaos that ensued um, around sort of um, the um, the sort of America region um, when nine eleven happened, but they don't actually reference nine eleven, um, but they talk about some of the. So apparently, for instance, obviously the the airspace was closed off at that point in time. So if you were an airplane across that side of the world, you were all diverted to some small town or or, or city in um, in Canada. And so all of a sudden, this this the city with an airstrip had all of these people kind of landing at the same time. Um, and so the play is basically about that situation. Um, but it sounds really interesting, and and they made it into a musical apparently. Um, so they ref- they don't reference the, what actually happened with the twin towers, but they reference the fact that there was a tragedy, which meant that the, all these planes and all of these like tourists ended up stranded for like a month in this. Oh wow. No, I just think like, you can make a musical out of anything. I mean, one of my favourite musical experiences was The Toxic Avenger. So if you can make a, a, a cult trauma horror film into a, a I want to say award-winning musical, but into a musical, you can, you can do anything. I love you. Also, we, I saw The Matrix with a friend, the new one. Oh, I've not seen that yet. I, 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 I can't recommend it. Ooh, that bad? No, it's not bad. It's fine. It's so. So is it like this, right? So so, so twenty five years to ago, they made like the Scream movies, right? The Scream franchise, mm-hmm. and so they've just done a new Scream movie. And my review for the movie was: Did they need? Did they need to make one after twenty five years? No, but they made it, and they actually did a good job of it. Yeah. Is that how you're feeling about this this Matrix? No. Okay. I think partly because the best bits of the fan service bits, the best bits are the bits that you're totally there for as a fan of the 
not to the original trilogy, but certainly the first one. Yeah, and fan service done well, I'm all about. So those bits are great. But dear God, the plot is garbage. Oh. Um, and it, it really suffers from too many ideas crammed into a single film. Like, this would have clearly been better as a... Like everything, it would have been better as a Netflix series. Um, to give those ideas room to breathe is kind of let down by the fact it's a Matrix film. So there has to be some slow motion kung fu and lots of bullets. Which sort of gets in the way of some of the interesting questions they were posing in in the same way the original Matrix tried to be quasi-deep about you know, the nature of reality and free will. It does some of that stuff um, with a very modern lens. And, you know, I, I think it's about Trumpism. Quite it's clearly. Really, it, but... it's, it's really interesting, because as I'm hearing you talking about this, it reminds me of the book that I'm currently reading. If anyone is, is curious as to the book I'm, what I'm currently reading, this is my second book of 2022, so I'm really proud that I've already finished one. But I'm reading um, The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, who was obviously the Roman emperor. And he, and a lot of what he was doing was struggling with reality and, and, and obviously like his soul and, and being a person, which... I know people listening are going to think, how the hell did she relate that to The Matrix? But I did. <laughs> That's fair enough. So, go and see it in the cinema, because it's a, spe- it's a spectacle. It deserves to be seen on the big screen. I didn't love it, but I did enjoy the fan service moments. I don't regret paying money to see it. That's um, a good review. That is yeah. a good review. It's not and exactly the... a resounding review, but it's not bad. Yeah, and on the side note, if you do go to the cinema, I would definitely check out Scream. Like I said, did they need to make it 25 years later? No, but they did a good job of it. Um, and if you need a book recommendation, Marcus Aurelius, Meditations. Yeah. Um, so, Kat, we have got some interesting stuff coming up in the, in the pipeline. And we've just released, we've just released a reel as a shout out mm-hmm. to people, right? So basically what we're saying is, if you're working in the tech for good space, we want to hear from you. So it's now, a, a call to arms, you could say. Yes, exactly. Now, I know what you're thinking, Kat. Well, no, you're not thinking it, but let's pretend you are. What do we mean by tech for good? I don't know, so, Laura. What do we mean by tech for good? Maybe <laughs> I'd love to know more. So basically, we're interested in looking and, and speaking to people who are working on um, social causes, technical technological causes which are looking to improve our social climate our environment um and these could be things like you know building uh, apps to help refugees that's a great great example of technology which is being used to solve a real world problem um obviously that's one example something else could be mobility applications um and so that's you know as our ethos i think we stand for diversity and inclusion in tech but we also stand for good tech you know um and i'd love to hear about some of the cool projects which are going on globally where people are you know saying hey there's some real world problems that we'd love to solve and some of it is directly via tech some of it is indirectly via technology um and we would like to speak to you so if you're interested in being part of the series reach out to us on twitter um so i guess people are going to wonder where will they be able to consume this series they'll be able to consume it on LinkedIn. We're going to be doing LinkedIn live sessions. Um, so we're venturing into the world of LinkedIn. Um, we'll be Did sending you, I it. Hope, I hope you appreciate that seamless transition to that. I, what I felt was a salient detail. <laughs> um, but yeah, is, I think it'll be a great series. This is what two years of podcast bring us. Professional. Oh, pros. Of... 
pros. But, but, but seriously, it's a, it's a really important cause. Well, it's, it's, it's not, not really a cause. It's a, it's a collection of causes. And I think it's worth highlighting people's work. If people find it interesting, they want to get help, they want to get involved, just learn something. It's a really, really good thing to do. So I'm excited to, to get started with it. Awesome. That brings us very nicely into this evening's topic. Or for someone listening right now, it could be daytime for you, it could be morning, wherever you are. Um, we, don't, we don't judge when people listen, only that, that they do. Exactly. And if you listen, please like, share and subscribe. Um, it does make a difference. You know, leave a review, a nice one. Or leave Thank us your you. feedback. Yeah. So, go on, Amara. What is our topic? Because this is, this is one of your topics, so I'm going to let you introduce it because I would do it a disservice. Okay, so for those who know or don't know, I have just started a new role. Um, I won't go into too much detail, but one of the things that I'll be looking at in terms of my role is um, the internationalization of software and technology. For anyone listening going, hmm, what do you mean by that, Amara? It's basically looking at how we can make technology accessible globally, right? So you look at the, the country that that technology is going to be implemented in, the types of people who are going to be using it, and you understand the cultural nuances as well, and you try and make that technology accessible. Um, and I thought, you know what? Why not have a? Why not delve into it, and have a a light discussion, cat, uh, and share our thoughts on it um, and our views. Uh, so yeah, that. Well, I think uh, I mean in in many ways uh, we're a little a little like the blind leading the blind because we have to recognise. For good or ill, mostly for ill, but there's clearly a Western bias in the tech, global tech space that reaches. I'm not talking about those things that emerge in countries and dominate them, like Badu in China, and I'm sure Pakistan and India have their own homegrown stuff, but the majority of stuff that we get presented is made by Westerners who speak English, and everything mm-hmm. is basically built around that experience. Exactly. In that way, we're very lucky to effectively be the first thought. Um, and I guess what you're talking about is how to make everybody feel like the first thought and not go, well, we did the English version and, and yeah, everything else is like the afterthought. Exactly. And I think that's the, that's the interesting bit where a lot of what we consume does generate from the West. And so we assume, and this is again, you know, it, uh, it, it comes from an ignorant place um, that how we use it is how someone else will use it. How we perceive the world, how we perceive the applications that we use and how we navigate those or how other people would use it. Um, and the last couple of weeks I've been kind of like delving into this um, under under quite a few different layers. And, and what I found interesting is obviously... The, the first thing when, when, when you talk about, oh, localization, people assume, oh, okay, you're just translating it, which is correct. You know, someone sitting in Pakistan might have WhatsApp, but they might have it, um, using Urdu, which is like one of the local languages. Um, but then it's, it's like, okay, but do we understand the cultural nuances to make sure that those translations are not literal translations? Um, well, and that's, and in, in, sorry to interrupt, but I mean, it's not just that translation is literal it is that the entire experience changes um just because a phrase fits into a button in english it doesn't mean it will in hindi or urdu or chinese or any other language it could be much shorter it could be much longer everything everything sort of has to be rethought in a way 
or at least some some or you sort of search for that sort of universal design language, which I guess was one of the drives of the the original WYSIWYG. You know what you see is what you get, and Windows icons, menus, and pointers, where you don't use language or you define a new language of, of icons of universal meaning. But even those icons have cultural baggage, uh, and it's interesting how they persisted uh, to a point where we take it for granted that a floppy disk icon is safe even though most people probably have never touched a floppy disk and quite a few may not even know what that is it's just the save icon not oh yeah that, that's the disk icon and yes i don't think anyone in in sort of like millennials should know I, I hope millennials know what a floppy disk is, um, but Gen Z definitely wouldn't. But it's interesting, like, if you just look at the save button, if you took the literal world save, the word save in, say, Urdu or Punjabi, it'd be either, like, um, it'd be Bajau or, uh, I'm trying to think of the Punjabi word, which would be Bachke or something like that, right? But then how how do you know which is the right word, though? Because the literal translation might might be slightly different than what they would actually use for the save as in save a file. So there's all of these extra layers on top, which I, which I think are so interesting. And I'll be honest, I was not ignorant of, but you, you just don't think about it because like you said, Kat, when something is made for you as a Western consumer, it just works mm. and, and it, you know, is adapted to you as a English user. We're, well, we are very, very familiar with those icons, etc. So we, we don't really spend time thinking, but how would X person on the other side of the world be using it? You know. Well, and would... I think the dangers of, as you were saying, um, sort of machine learning translation or auto translation. Like, there's always, you know, people always point to those hilarious Chinese translations of where it's just ridiculously wrong. Um, I remember watching a, a YouTube video. I can't remember who by. He sort of went through quite a lot of them, going, "Here's why they're wrong," and it's because. Words have so many different meanings in contexts that a literal, tra even a machine learning translation, it's not going to guess right all the time. In fact, it very rarely does, because it's a gigantically difficult problem, it turns out. And I was actually saying this to someone during this week, because I said it's it's the difference between a literal translation and an actual intent. And mm -hmm. in order to get the translation correct, you need to understand the intent of the user, which if you don't spend time understanding the cultural nuances, the intent of the, the specific word, you might end up, you know, finding the word which translates literally from the English word. So save, we'll use that as an example, or print, or, you know, submit. But if it's not, the, if the intent is not what the user is used to, then that user is not going to understand what that button is there for. It might take them a while. Um, and that's the difference in some technology where it's really important for that button to have the correct intent. I work in education tech, so it's really, really important that if the student isn't able to understand and verify the save button, that's the difference between them submitting an assignment on time and not submitting an assignment on time. And that's where it becomes really, really important versus someone just, you know, being out and about in France and wanting to order something in a restaurant. I mean, hopefully they order the right thing. But, you know, these are some like real life examples of where sometimes literal translations can can mean that you end up with the wrong thing on your plate. Well, and again, the, the other problem in this way, um, translation is an active process. It's full of choices because 
when you go beyond simple nouns and verbs, not only are you bringing along the cultural you know, context that the original was written in and being translated to one way, that context is very different, but also the intent of the original. I mean, especially if you're thinking about uh, rhyming, for example, it may not rhyme in the translation. Just because a phrase rhymes in English doesn't mean it will rhyme in Urdu. Just, just because there's a sort of lyrical quality to a set of syllables in English doesn't mean that will have fits the music in Urdu. So you have to make a choice. Do you preserve the intent, which is follow the music, get across the meaning? Do you, it's a, in it, it's a, that is an active process that has to be thought of, I guess, as part of that translation. No, most perhaps aren't going to sing at you, but it's, do you know what I mean? But actually, it does remind me, so Kat, I, I, I'm going to share the story to you. And everyone who's listening, who's who can, who um, has watched musicals in other languages will completely understand this. So um, I'm Pakistani, Bollywood movies, uh, you know, I've watched them in, in my lifetime. And if I was to take some like, and there's some really poetic Bollywood songs, right? Mm. Uh, but if you were to take them and translate them into English... Some of them would sound really bizarre, if not borderline crazy. Um, <laughs> and people do that, you know, they have YouTube videos where it's like, oh, a fo- you know, Western foreigner watches Bollywood music, like um, a Bollywood song. And so they have the translations underneath. And it could be something like the guy saying something really romantic, like, you know, um, I when I see you, I don't know if you're like, you know, you're as beautiful as the moon. And it'll sound so poetic in Urdu or, or Hindi. But the literal translation could be something as, as random as... Um, so I'm going to use a line. I'm going to show my Bollywood prowess. So there's, there's a song in Bollywood where he says, like, Chan chupa badal me, right? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful line. But if I was to translate it literally in English, it would be moon uh, hiding behind... Uh, wait, moon hiding behind um, rain... But it's not rain, because Badal is actually like a specific type of rain, but I can't actually think of the, the word. <laughs> but it loses the, the beauty and the poeticness when mm-hmm. I translate it into English, because I'm doing a literal translation. Yeah. Um, and so this is just, like I said, one example, and there's so many numerous ones, But and we always laugh at it, thinking, oh my God, if you had to ever tell our Western friends some of the Bollywood songs we listen to, they'd just be like, what the hell are you listening to? Well, uh, exactly. And it, it's that cultural, when you say it's a type of rain... Um, that that's a, a thing that people in that area who developed the language long, you know, many centuries can understand. Oh yeah, it's that type of rain. In, in the same way that you know we both live in, in England, it rains a lot. There are tons of words for rain here. Um, yeah. may, and I, I'm, you know, I'm going to bring up one of my favourite Star Trek episodes, Darmok, which everybody knows the line uh, uh, Darmok and Jalad at Tanegra. Uh, the whole point being, for the first time, the Enterprise encounters a race where the quote-unquote universal translate doesn't work. Because their entire language is based on, effectively, memes. It's how they communicate with idioms. And if nobody understands the idiom you're referring to, you don't have that single touch. And it sort of goes back to what we were saying about icons. Like, mm-hmm. why is save a disc? Like, does that mean anything to a country that missed out on the 8 and 16-bit era? Literally yeah. Doesn't. So how do you even then go, oh, that's safe, but why? How do you... You can't even go, yeah, well, it's a dead... You know, but if no one 
if, if the entire country skipped it. Um, but, you know, I'm always happy to talk about Star Trek because I'm a nerd. Uh, but it's very much that kind of bringing the, the cultural importance of it. I mean, again, England, we had all of our medical and naval metaphors, if you think about it. My favorite, personal favorite, it's cold enough to freeze the balls off a brass monkey. <laughs> it's a great okay. idea. Not come across that one, but that. <laughs> Can you imagine trying to explain that to someone who's not from this country? Well, exactly. Well, because the brass monkey, I believe, is is a brass ring that held cannonballs on ships. And obviously, when it got cold, brass contracts, so the cannonballs would roll off. That that may be uh, apocryphal. Um, but it, we have so many naval metaphors, like, oh, I'm three sheets of the wind for being drunk. Um, and you know, the one, that, the one that I, I once got asked by my, my friend who's Canadian, she said, why do you call the pound a quid? And and I said, I, I, I don't know, it's just always been, like, interchangeable. You can say, like, here's one pound, or you could say, here's one quid. And she said, but why? Where does it come from? I don't, I don't know. I just was, you know, when you grew up in with in this country, yeah. it's just I, no, a part right, of our then, term. But then also, like when we were younger, we would refer to them as squids, which is that is like a third step removed from the original <laughs> intent. Of, so how on earth do you translate? Do you translate literally squid into whatever local currency is, or do you go and seek out the what? What is the what is the youth? Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the, again, so to pull this back to tech, because we have gone down the rabbit hole of metaphor. Um, but if anyone does know where, where the term quid comes from, please do let me know. Tweet at us at Queens of the Tech Age, Queens OTT Age, even. The Twitter doesn't like long handles. Yeah. So bring this back round to tech and your new role, I guess, we're expanding on that. Where's, where is the limitations currently that you see? What is the. So my mission, and just just from looking at what some of the stuff I've been exploring the last three weeks, is is we need to to get better at improving the intent of translations. I think there's so many um, like quick ways of translating information, um, but the the most important thing when you look at things like localization of of technology, it's important to spend time to understand the intent um, of your consumer. Uh, understand the culture, also understand the the uh, cultural significances, and that will then allow you to make the right choice when it comes to um, the the process of um, you know making your technical application more global. Um, and it's it's honestly, I've only been in the role three three weeks three weeks, but I'm loving it because I get to play around with information, but I also get to understand the differences between. Um, a really great example someone gave me last week was um, the word usted and tu is, is, is basically interchangeable in Spanish, right? Um, but actually usted is a very LATAM um, uh, use of, of that phrase. Um, it's not actually used in Spain Spanish. It's too formal. It's probably something that they would probably only use when they're referring to their grandparents. And so we had to make that change because... Yes, the, both the words mean the same thing, but the the people and and who will be using um, this application will not uh, recognize recognize that word because it's it's way too formal uh, and it's not used in the same context. And so, yeah, I'm get I'm getting to really understand some of the like intricacies of 
um, languages and how they are adapted in different cultures. And I was talking to a friend of mine this week and, and my friend speaks Malay. And the question they asked me was, what do you, what's the word for short in, in, um, Hindi or Punjabi, etc.? Um, and I said, it's like dingu or, you know, and they were like, oh, but it's interesting because the same word means tall in Malay. So again, it's like, you know, these little things which make the use of, um, or make the, 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 or can improve a, a localization experience for a customer. So yeah, I am getting to delve into, into these really cool things, which, um, yes, I sound really geeky when I say this. Um, but I'm on this mission to, to say if, if companies are making software, which is, um, meant to be consumed globally, that's great. But then they also need to make sure that they understand the intent of the, the way it's used. Um, and, and, and get that right as well, because that's what can really make or break an experience. And I, and I now get to say that I do that for my role, which is pretty amazing. Um, so, so I was about to say, so what is, just to wrap up, wrap up the episode, what are you going to be, what are you doing the rest of the night? What are you doing with your day? So I'm going to get back into my book, guys, because I am obsessed with the... the so med- the meditations of Marcus Aurelius were actually his personal notes. They were never meant to be from... from uh, They were his sort of like personal diaries to himself. They were never really meant to be consumed. So you get like a really like in-depth view into someone's soul and psyche. So um, I'm really enjoying that. So I'm going to continue reading that. See, um, I love how highbrow that is. I'm going to go and watch the rest of the Rumble. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we love you, Kat. Um, I, but... I, don't, I don't watch much on the WWE Network because, come on, AEW is clearly superior. But I will watch the Rumble because it's always a lot of fun. And yes, I, mean, I like I mean, professional wrestling. I can't help it. Is Hulk Hogan still around? No? Oh, God, no. The Undertaker? No. No? The Mark Rock? Calloway is retired. Well, uh, no. He's, he's far too big a Hollywood star. <laughs> CM Punk. I mean, Chris Jericho's still around. Oh, wow. Rob Lesnar's still around. Um, who, was, who was the guy who also went into movies? Um, oh, God. John Cena? I think. Oh, yeah, John Cena. I, I, he to, again, he might crop up. You can imagine him coming back at a WrestleMania, but he's pretty old now. And, like The Rock. I mean, maybe The Rock, you could see him doing something with Roman Reigns, and he'd, he'd totally put Reigns over. They're basically they're, they're related. You can see the only reason The Rock would come back would be to do a program of Reigns to put Reigns over. Not that he needs it because he's Universal the Rock. Champion. No, no, Ray, Roman Reigns, Universal Champion. Oh, okay. You are sorry. So, you are so not. You know the whole thing with WrestleMania, um, not WrestleMania, the Royal Rumble this year with um, Seth Rollins and the whole callback to the Shield. Even though Moxley. No. Is in uh, well, Dean Ambrose as he was now in AEW. Anyway, I could talk about this forever. That's a different podcast. But if people do want to get hold of you, Cat, and continue conversations on on wrestling and three D printing, um, where can they find you? They can find me at Caitlin underscore F underscore Baker on Twitter, and at Fenrica on Instagram. How about you, Mara? It's... Where can the people find you? Their their leader. <laughs> Normally, anywhere where there's a coffee shop. Um... <laughs> But yeah, you can find me on Amara Queens Otth on Twitter, Queens uh, Amara Queens Otth on uh, 
or Instagram. How could I, how could I forget the name of my favorite application? Um, and yeah, just drop us a note. Let us know how you think about what you think about episodes. What are your views? Um, and, and also and if you let can... us know if you want a spin-off episode for Make and Mara watch wrestling. And then oh my gosh, I would totally do that. That would, be so, that. that would be so much fun. Like, we'll just make you watch like Dynamite or SmackDown, and then we talk about how awful you found the experience. <laughs> <laughs> As long as I can throw in like a couple of Die Hard references, which I feel like, hey, if I can, if I can do that with Marcus Aurelius and Matrix, Die Hard any day of the week. Um, Kat, thank you so much for joining me again, and I'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye.